Hi, this is Jim from Safety Wars. Before we start the program, I want to make sure everyone understands that we often talk about OSHA and EPA citations, along with some other regulatory actions from other agencies, legal cases, and criminal activity. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Proposed fines are exactly that, and they are often litigated, reduced, or vacated. We use available public records, news accounts, and press releases. We cannot warranty or guarantee the details of any of the stories we share, since we are not directly involved with these stories, at least not most of the time. Enjoy the show. This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. And from the border of liberty and prosperity in the highway to the north, this is Safety Wars for Monday, December 4th, 2023. We're getting right down to the end of the year here. We're going to be talking about, in the very near future, smart goals. Probably tomorrow. The reason being, a lot of our employers are requiring smart goals. A lot of our uh, clients are requiring smart goals. That was a huge thing when I was in the oil industry uh, for the end of the year. And there's certain approaches that you want to have for that. And there's some positives, some negatives. Uh, you know, those things you really have to think about. Uh, for that and coming up with some new ideas that are actually relevant to safety. I'm not saying that they're all non-relevant to safety, but things that we could deal with better rather than saying we're going to do, we're going to put in a quota that's not a quota for how many near misses, good catches we're going to do, for training and everything. You want to have measurable things and uh, maybe things that are not so measurable, those goals that you want to get Alright, sooner or later we'll get to that place where we want to go. And walk in the sun, like Bruce Springsteen said. Alright, okay. A lot going on out there. I got a lot of comments last week on our uh, program where I mentioned about demography. And again, very little dialogue anymore in today's culture. We have one person screaming and yelling at each other, at another person. Another person screaming and yelling at him or her. And everybody's screaming and yelling and sloganeering because we have to go and get you a slogan because people's attention span is only eight seconds nowadays. So we have to come out there. And and then what, what do you have? And you have fouled up policies that are out there and you get what we call externalities, unintended consequences, and everything else. And that's what we're going to talk about in the first segment here today. Here we have, right? Uh, now you're going to say, why are you starting out with this? Well, because it has to do with financial safety and financial security here. And a Supreme Court case that allegedly is being argued today. Uh, this is uh, this whole program is being... Uh, Done a little bit earlier today because we got some stuff going on tonight. So here is from the Wall Street Journal, and this is uh, from this morning. Article by Richard Rubin and Jess Braven, or Bravin. Once Supreme Court case could mess up chunks of the tax code, justices will debate the meaning of income under the 16th Amendment. A case that could punch holes in the federal tax code heads to the Supreme Court on Tuesday. Okay, well, it's tomorrow, right? Court will hear arguments in Moore versus the U.S., which challenges a piece of the 2017 tax law that imposed a one-time levy on profits that companies had accumulated outside the U.S. If you recall, this was argued when this was passed and signed uh, that we were going to get a big, a lot of stimulus money here, trying to get that money in there. Uh, that companies had accumulated outside the U.S., but its implications could reach much further providing the justices an opportunity to define what Congress can tax under the Constitution when it can. The case brought by a Washington state couple seeking a $14,729 refund raises the simple question. Must income be realized or received before it can be taxed? Charles and Kathleen Moore argued that when the, tax, when the law passed, they hadn't realized income from their investment in an India-based company and thus couldn't be taxed. Some conservative groups have backed them, seeing a chance to block future Congresses from taxing wealth or unrealized capital gains. 
A broad ruling for the Moors could create a constitutional war against some of the more popular uh, democratic proposals to tax the super-rich. Tax lawyers and the government say a sweeping ruling could also upend many long-standing rules affecting partnerships, multinational co- uh, companies, and bond investors. And it goes on, and there's one uh, uh, person, uh, former House Speaker Paul Ryan from Wisconsin, that said that the case could damage a third of the tax code. If the Moore's win, investors and companies could demand billions of dollars in refunds tied to the 2017 law, and a loss for the government could prompt a wave of lawsuits over other tax code provisions, according to lawyers. It's hard to see how this is going to turn out well. They are really opening up a can of worms. Again, huge amounts of tax refunds. Huge amounts of things going on here. What are, you know, they've, they meaning the government and everything else with all this patchwork of regulations and laws and everything have put themselves into a little bit of a pickle here. What's going to happen if we have to refund all of this money? Right? If this actually does come out, guess what? It's going to come from somewhere. It's either we're going to generate more uh, uh, debt or we're going to have to start cutting uh, uh, programs and things of that nature to pay for that, uh, pay for this, or they're going to have to start getting together in Congress and working together to fix this tax code of ours. Where are these things usually going to come out of? They're going to come out of some pet projects, some pork spending. We understand that, but what about some of the programs that we rely on? the environmental industry, and the safety industry. Will this come out of OSHA's thing? So we're going to have less enforcement, less compliance uh, programs, fewer compliance programs. Same thing with the EPA, depending on how this election works out. Uh, We'll be watching this because uh, I tell you what, and what probably would have been cheaper, right, had they just sent them the $14,729 that they were asking for. Probably would have been cheaper for them. I don't know. But but this is uh, the way it is uh, with these folks. Uh, You have to know when you're debating someone, when you are discussing things, when you are negotiating things, who you're dealing with. I can recall a couple years ago, I believe it was 2009, 2010, uh, the... uh, State of New York pissed off a bunch of people to a couple in Westchester County. I said to my wife, you watch. All of the gun laws are going to be repealed because of these people. Because I think they mess with the wrong people. You could see that with their rhetoric and their attitude that they weren't going to allow New York State to push them around. And what ended up happening was most of the uh, concealed carry permit laws and everything were uh uh, overturned in this country because of this. Because of this. Had, the, had, it, had they just gone and just said, okay, you have a good argument, we're going to give you this, blah, 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 probably wouldn't have happened here and with any of these laws being overturned. Something to realize there, if you're a government official, who are you messing with and what's going to happen if you lose your argument? That doesn't seem to be uh, anything in there, and that's some, that doesn't seem to be considered... And that's essentially what uh, uh, you have to consider. Same thing goes in your workplace. If you're a manager, I've gotten into this several times. Well, you can't do that. You can't do that. Well, guess what? Watch me. Look, I'm trying to negotiate with you. And it could be on anything. Salary. It could be on work duties. It could be on, uh, hey, how are we going to do this job safely? And then you overplay your hand, and it happens to safety people all the time also, where we overplay our hands. So remember who you're dealing with on this. Uh, I've been following a couple of people on Instagram that give you ideas on how to negotiate, how to answer people, and I probably should start incorporating some of those into training here. Here's another one here. This is from... Uh, VOA News, Voice of America News. 
Uh, this is, in case you are not uh, uh, familiar with it, uh, this is the official uh, United States news agency, primarily targeted for overseas uh, uh, clientele and overseas sources. Uh, Sammy Hagar has a song out, VOA, from the early 1980s, Voice of America. And someone say this is similar to Pravda, uh, the propaganda wing of the uh, old Soviet Union and their, you know, other things. Okay, great. Uh, however, uh, this is our uh, version of it. Despite Ukraine war needs, arms sales trouble by production woes. This is a story out of Stockholm. Many Western arms companies failed to ramp up production in 2022 despite a strong increase in demand for weapons and military equipment, watchdog groups said Monday, adding that labor shortages, soaring costs, and supply chain disruptions had been exacerbated by Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. The top 100 uh, of search f- such firms is Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, or CEP, CIPRI said the arms revenue of the world's largest arms-producing and military services company stood at $597 billion, a 3.5% drop from 2021. Many arms companies are face, uh, face obstacles in adjusting to production for high-intensity warfare. Now, people who have been paying attention to this, <clears throat> pardon me, people who have been paying attention to this whole thing, Realize that uh, in this country, United States, we shut down our capacity, reduce our capacity for arms, small arms, especially with the uh, basically phasing out of lead smelters and things of that nature. And one of the questions, and if you're an avid hunter or sportsman or target shooter, I've hear from a lot of my friends how ammunition prices have gone up. There have been ammunition shortages in this country for a long time. Some say that's a great thing. There was a thing back, well, back in the day. Well, hey, we're going to raise the price of ammunition so there's fewer guns on the street, less uh, gun violence. And you had huge purchases by government agencies that you would not think have guns, like the Internal Revenue Service, uh, Department of Treasury, things of that nature, uh, with huge uh, ammunition purchases, uh, now, ahead of these shutdowns and sometimes concurrent with these shutdowns, we're right after them, we're buying them up, buying up all this ammo, the popular stuff, 9mm, 40 caliber, and uh, handgun ammunition. Anyway, you had uh, all of this stuff, and people said, well, what's going to happen if we get into a war situation where we need this capacity? Well, that'll never happen again. Uh-uh. Oh, yeah? Guess again. Same thing happens with a lot of the other stuff with uh, production capacity on missiles and things of that nature. Again, no thought to this stuff. All right. Here we have our next story on water. All right. So the Politico, let's see if I can pull up this story here. Uh, Bear with me a second. Okay, here it is. So everyone knows here that in every September we go through Disaster Preparation Month and we talk about all different types of stuff. Here we have uh, from Politico, this is, I didn't get to this story uh, last week, but this is actually a very important story. Federal government investigating multiple hacks of U.S. water utilities. Iranian hackers suspected to be behind attacks targeting facilities that use Israeli-made equipment. The federal government is investigating multiple hacks suspected to have been launched by an Iranian government-linked cyber group. Uh, cyber group, this article, by the way, let me mention it. Maggie Miller and John Sakalariadis from the Politico. One of the breaches made headlines Saturday after the Tehran-linked uh, Cyber Avengers group uh, named claim responsibility for hitting a water authority in Pennsylvania. In total, the government is aware of and examining a single-digit number of facilities that have been affected across the country, according to two people who were granted anonymity to discuss details that have not been made public. Well, they're being made public now. None of the hacks caused significant disruptions, according to individuals, while cyber experts familiar with the Pennsylvanians and said the activity appears designed to stoke fears 
about using Israeli devices. Washington has been bracing for increased cyber reaches from Iran since the latest conflict broke out between Israel and the militant group Hamas, which Tehran has long supported. It also comes amid a spate of recent drone and rocket attacks on American troops in the Middle East, conducted by Iranian proxy groups. Water facilities in general are a particularly vulnerable part of U.S. infrastructure, often due to a lack of funding and personnel for the issue at smaller utilities. The Biden administration has sought to address the problem, including through expanding partnerships with private organizations involved in the water sector. In Saturday's hack on the Municipal Water Authority of Aliquippa outside of Pittsburgh, authorities say uh, the group, which researchers believe has ties to Iranian government, breached a digital control panel made by an Israeli-owned company, Unitronics, and disabled it. Pardon me. Okay, so this is my question for you. What are you going to do? We have threats to water stuff here. What are you going to do? How are you going to be prepared? Right? Uh, uh, With that. Now, let's go into the next one, which is a related thing. New York's, this is from Wall Street Journal, uh, Wall Street Journal from December 1st, from the editorial board, and it's a, first time reading about this. Uh, All right. Uh, probably shouldn't go back and look at the full-blown report here, but I'll give you the summary. Imagine if a, nearly a half of New York City lost heat for months during the winter. That's not the plot of a new survival drama. Such a catastrophe nearly occurred last Christmas, according to an alarming recent report by energy regulators that deserves more attention. FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and the North American Electric Reliability Corporation last month, published a 168-page review of the electric city and natural gas problems during the winter storm Elliott last December. This is the fifth time in 11 years that power plant failures caused by cold weather jeopardize grid reliability. Okay, and it goes on and on and on. Now, combined with that one, with this one, electric, and the last one, water, right, the rest of water and electric, what are you going to do about this? What kind of preparation are you going to have? Going, uh, going and say, well, we got to go and uh, storm City Hall, and we got to go to the last public meeting, and we got to call our senators. Okay, great. That's a good thing. That's actually a positive thing to do, right? Just don't get violent. Don't be orderly. Don't cause an issue like January 6th, and that's a very positive thing, and go with cogent, logical Reasonable arguments. Great, that's one approach. How long is that going to take? Could be a while, right? Now, uh, how about if we, uh, what are you going to do if you're going to uh, be caught in a situation like this? What are your plans? Electric is easy, ultimately the easiest, especially if you're in a single family dwelling. Right? Or maybe a two-family dwelling. You can have a generator there. Okay, great. What if you're in an apartment building? High-density housing, we call them up in these parts. What if you're any... What are you going to do? That's my question. you got to prepare yourself. We're going to take a break right now, and we'll come back to you after the break. Have you listened... Or watched uh, the Safety War show. It does stream live on on the radio and um, on the streamer emers that we have. So if you have not taken a listen to Jim Bozel and what the hell he's doing every evening with uh, Safety Wars, I would I would strongly encourage you to um to take a view or take a listen, um, whichever option is available for you, and take a listen to what the hell he has going on. Uh, it's definitely it will take some deep dives and some information that you might be interested in. This is Safety Wars, broadcasting to our brothers and sisters in the occupied territory of behavior-based safety. Get out your secret decoder ring. Here is your nightly message. Human error is normal. Human error is normal. OSHA Recordables. 
catastrophic losses, environmental disasters. You want answers? So do I. This is Jim Polzel with Safety Wars. That's my daddy! And we are back. You are listening to Safety Wars. Tomorrow's safety today. All right, so uh, let's see what else is going on here. Again, what's uh, no? There's a theme here, right? What, what we're what we're moving to is called logic, trying to have open conversations, debates, and things of that nature. Uh, at least trying to encourage that in our society, because again, you have to debate things. You have to get information out there. You're going to be much more successful. You're going to have less people at each other's throats, and at least in my opinion, if you have more information. And as someone on this network correctly said, I believe it was Todd Conklin, more information does not make us dumber, <laughs> right? And the sloganeering, you know, it's been a lifelong uh, per, uh, pursuit of mine to try to get away from sloganeering. Now we are into the meme world, which is just another form of sloganeering, but uh, oh well. Got to apply things and put things in context. Here we have, uh, and again, I'm going to read the letter here with this. Uh, this came out, uh, this letter hit the news last week, I believe it was, or the week before, November 24th. Did not get a lot of coverage on that. So, uh, the stories are on November 24th. Just out of curiosity, what day was November 24th? It was the Friday after Thanksgiving. So if you want, so let me get this, uh, let me put this plain and simple. If you want to bury a story, right, and you don't want people to really pay attention to it, put it on a Friday after a major holiday, after Thanksgiving, for example. Or you do what a lot of people, uh, no, uh, this happened so many times, it's not even funny that it became humorous, where certain elements of the government would come up with politicians, not conspiratorial, this is that, you can actually uh, look this up. Whenever there was something controversial, and it didn't matter whether they were Democrats or Republicans, that they didn't want people to know about, they would wait for certain commentators talk show hosts, TV shows, radio shows, to go on vacation. Then after they go on vacation, what do you think they do? They release all this crap, and then the person doesn't come back from vacation because it's usually an exotic vacation. Or like I'm finding out, when you go on vacation, when you're doing this, these podcasts and these broadcasts, you go on freaking vacation, you know? And so this came out, right? Uh, the letter was issued before the holiday, but it was covered after the holiday, right? And this was in the Wall Street Journal. Let me uh, mention this so you have an idea where I'm going. Elizabeth Warren has had an Obamacare epiphany. The senator complains about the industry consolidation of price increases caused by the health care law. It took th and this is from the Wall Street Journal editorial. Uh, again, we're just doing the Wall Street Journal today, right? It took 13 years, but Elizabeth Warren is at long last acknowledging that Obamacare has increased health care prices and industry, con industry consolidation. Who would have believed it? Government price controls and profit caps have resulted in unintended consequences, a.k.a. externalities, which I talked about a minute ago. The Massachusetts Senator and Republican Senator Mike Braun of Indiana this week wrote a letter to Health and Human Services Department Inspector General complaining... Uh, that the nation's largest health care insurers are dodging Obamacare, uh, Obamacare's medical loss ratio. The result, they say, is higher costs for patients. Wow, I'm shocked. Higher costs for patients? Really? Wow. The MLR is a de facto cap on profits. It requires that insurance spend at least 80 to 85% of premium dollars on medical claims. Democrats claim the rule would make health spending more transparent and reduce insurer spending on overhead. Consumers will see more value from their premium doctor, uh, the Obama HHS said. Instead, as we have been pointing out for years, the rule has spurred insurers to merge with or require pharmacy benefit managers, PBMs, retail and specialty pharmacies, and healthcare providers. 
This has made healthcare spending less. Transparency since insurance can shift profits to their affiliates by re increasing reimbursements. Okay, so let's go to the letter here. And this letter is, uh, again, this is open source. Uh, now, uh, when it comes to reading articles online, you know, this is all fair use. For, I can't read the whole article. That's, like, not fair use. However, I can read a published letter from uh, the United States government that's open source here, non-copyrighted. So, in case you're wondering about that. This is from the two senators, uh... Elizabeth Warren and Mike Braun uh, on their official United States Senate letterhead. Dear Inspector General Grimm, this is to Christy Grimm, we are writing regarding vertical integration in the healthcare industry and its role in raising already skyrocketing, sky-high prescription drug costs. In particular, we are concerned by a recent report suggesting that large insurance companies uh, and we'll mention the companies, whether they're companies you know of, are hiking drug prices at their vertically integrated specialty pharmacies to evade the medical loss ratio, a statutory requirement for health insurance to insurers to spend at least 80 or 85% of healthcare premium dollars on medical claims. We therefore request that the Health and Human Services Office of the Inspector General investigate the extent of this potential MLR gaming and its harming harm on patients and taxpayers. Last month, the Wall Street Journal published a report revealing significant markups of generic drugs at specialty pharmacies owned by companies. Right? In each case, prices for these products are far higher at vertically integrated specialty pharmacies than they were at another independent pharmacy. Uh, the Wall Street Journal used as a baseline. And uh, the uh, companies charge... 27.4, 24.2, and 3.5 times more respectively than the generic pharmacy, than the independent pharmacy across the selection of 19 drugs. These findings are alarming. In functioning markets, generic drugs cost 80 to 85% less than their name brand equivalents for giving patients much needed relief from high drug costs and saving taxpayer dollars. For example, the journal's analysis found that the generic version of Tarsera, a lung cancer drug, Cost seventy three dollars a month at an independent pharmacy. I'm not again. They mentioned the pharmacies here. You can look them up, but I'm not mentioning them on the air. Compared to a staggering four thousand five hundred and fifty three dollars a month from the brand name version, but patients, including patients in public health care programs like Medicare, Medicaid, who either use or are compelled to use vertically integrated specialty pharmacies, are not seeing this relief. By comparison. A company charges $4,409 a month, or roughly the same price as a brand name version, while another company, right, an integrated pharmacy, uh, charges uh, $2,056. One key factor driving these high prices appears to be the fact that insurers own other key links in this drug supply chain. Okay, and it goes on. What does this mean? As I understand it, it's like this. Back in when Obamacare was passed, everything was separate. You had a health insurance company, you had uh, this company, you have this company, you have this company. What happens is the healthcare company goes and it buys these other three companies, including the prescription company, and now it feeds, right? And there's like a little bit of collusion here, it looks like. That's what it looks like. This is what this is alleging. This is what I'm getting out of this. All right, where... Okay, we're going to spend 85% of our uh, money on health insurance, on the health claims, on this, on that. But we're going to force them and compel them to use these pharmacies. All right? I've fallen into this trap with my parents, and I can talk a little bit more freely now, with uh, the insurance company saying, use this pharmacy, use this pharmacy, use this pharmacy. This sheds a little bit of light as to why they're forcing us to, or compelling us to use such and such a pharmacy. And the reason being is, is that they're getting money up here from one source and they're giving it to this company over here and that company, it's all the same shareholders. Right? It's just an accounting trick to get around the laws. We all know 
this, and uh, and this is going to be a hard truth, but people know it deep down in their heart often, but they don't realize it. Companies do not pay, uh, do not pay taxes, right? Companies don't pay taxes. What do companies do? Companies go and they pass that cost along onto their consumers, as we're finding out now. Uh, so, for example, we have high prices for food now, right? Food prices have gone up. A lot of the, and not that we eat out often, but a lot of the food places we go to, right, are, uh, we went out to a restaurant last night. I ordered, and they raised the price on it, I ordered a meal, and it was the same size, because it wasn't like they were going to fake on that one, as uh, it was for a piece of prime rib. And they said a prime rib, 15 uh, ounce prime rib, used to be 16 ounce. Now, 15-ounce prime rib, I know I'm going to get a 15-ounce prime rib. I'm going to get that and other dietary-compliant items, sides on there. Now, other people are ordering things. The prices really didn't go up, but it's like the same items, half the size. They're getting around, uh, and they're still remaining profitable by either charging more, like with my dish, or giving you less like everyone else's dishes. We went through this this morning. Bagels, right? We, uh, uh, My wife went out. Uh, I happen to be working from home today. That's a rarity. My wife and I decided to go out. We're going to go out to the bagel shop. We'll get some breakfast sandwiches, blah, 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 right, today. Uh, just have a nice romantic alone thing. You know, I wish I could do this more often with my wife. Uh, and my kids, where we have breakfast together. And guess what? I said, son of a gun, the bagels are smaller. We're not giving you as much. Again, hidden stuff in here. So with all these prices and inflation and everything, there are ways of hiding this stuff. You're get paying more, getting less. And this is essentially what this came to. They put up a thing, well, oh, we're going to make it this way. Then all of a sudden, companies find a way around uh, this. So when someone tells you, hey, it's going to do this and it's going to be cheaper, guess again. Here we have one uh, from the Texas Public Policy Foundation just uh, for uh, just for uh, complete disclosure here with this. Uh, uh, and yes, it is an industry group. They do have some political leanings and things of that nature. But I think the report raises a important uh, raises an important uh, 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 point here in environmental policy because I've been dealing with this since like the late 1990s. And one of the things is uh, when I was working in political life and also uh, in less political stuff, uh, making a decision. So uh, making decisions. So I was over at uh, uh, the church I used to belong to, and they there was a company out there that was advertising towards churches, hey, you have to be at the forefront of, uh, uh, of these environmental issues. And one of them was alternative fuels, solar energy. And they came in with a wonderful presentation. And, they, and then someone called me and said, Jimmy, you want to come in? They're going to go and repeat some of this stuff. Do the sales pitch again. Says, Can you come in and uh, talk here? And I came in there and they're like, well, who the hell is this schmuck? And I was like, well, you know, a little bit of what I do, blah, blah, blah. And then you can just see the look in the person's eyes. Oh, okay. And I said, okay, now let me get this straight. You're going to supply solar panels. It's going to cost us this amount of money. Basically, we have to get a new roof for these solar panels. That's something that they don't tell you. You're going to get solar panels. You need a new roof. You need a good roof on there, number one. Number two is, and these things are, Guaranteed to work for 20 years. That means we're going to probably have to switch them out in 20 years. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And how much is it going to cost us? It's going to cost us X number of dollars. Okay. I said, according to my math here, this cost that you're charging us and everything else, everything else is going to cost us is not equal to the cost of the solar panels and all the other apparatus and everything else. Yes. And then the, that was, yeah, yeah, that's right. So the government's paying. Where is all this money coming from? The government's paying for it. 
Yeah, and we have some other funding sources and everything. Oh, okay. So and what we, was a discussion when I was in graduate school where all this stuff was coming out in the early, uh, early 2000s, late 1990s, was that a lot of these technologies are not working without subsidies. And the true call, and this article here is by Brett Brent Bennett and the Honorable Jason Isaac. Uh, I don't think that's the Jason Isaac uh, uh, Captain Lorca guy from Star Trek, all right, or from uh, the actor from uh, The Patriot uh, and many other movies. A very good actor, by the way. Uh, the true cost of EVs is more than the sticker price. The goals of Joe Biden's administration are lofty, among them nationwide vehicle electrification within 20 years. To reach the goal, the administration has proposed new fuel economy regulations that will help ensure 67% of new passengers' cars sold are electric vehicles by 2023. Some of the states I'm going to add are like New Jersey and California have much some similar things where we're not going to have uh, uh, any gasoline-powered vehicles by the mid-2030s. Uh, the good news is that I'll be ready for retirement or, you know, succumb to death by then so I don't have to live through this, right? Uh, the problem is that this green dream is physically impossible to achieve in the next 10 years, and our new research at TPPF shows how much Americans are already paying to try to achieve it. So basically... What this article says is we're, we cannot achieve any of these goals without huge government subsidies. Now, you're going to say, well, Jimmy, hold on, time out. Let me go to the other side of this. And this article does not go into this with this. We all, uh, now, back in February of this year, February or March of this year, we had a whole series of programs uh, from the uh, 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 International uh, Climate Change Conference in Orlando where we uh, had uh, interviewed a whole bunch of people. But scientifically and financially, there's not enough of these resources to make the batteries or anything else without a major, uh, uh, major, and I mean major, scientific breakthrough, right? We're, I mean, look, consider what we're doing. We're doing strip mining for these things. Uh, if, we were, uh, if we were going to go and uh, mine everything and put everybody on 100% solar panels, for example, or alternative fuels. We don't have enough resources for 15 years. So this really isn't a sustainable thing. And as another thing, oil. Oil is at uh, uh, an all-time production level in the United States. Right? We're producing more oil. We produced more oil last year and in, uh, that is 2022 than any other time in history. Apparently, that's what's at least what's being uh, uh, promoted. Now, let's uh, talk about this uh, uh, a little bit, all right, with this. Uh, the oil industry, they're not subsidized. They haven't been subsidized. Don't think that we're that naive. The oil industry has been subsidized at the wazoo for a long time. From the beginning, I mean, they had electric cars back in the early 1900s that were outcompeted by uh, in late 1890s. They were outcompeted uh, by the gas industry, and there were all different types of shenanigans back then. And we also uh, 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 had lax environmental laws, and continue to have lax environmental laws against with the oil industry. Hell, they don't even uh, classify on the federal level oil as a hazardous material for years. Right, New Jersey didn't for years. I believe they do now. But anyway, uh, they, they did, I'm sorry, the other way around, they were classified as a uh, hazardous material in New Jersey, but now they're not. No, that sort of thing changed law. All different kinds of subsidies. All different types of things that we let the local municipalities get away with, with sewage tr uh, treatment or the lack of sewage treatment that contaminated huge swaths of land uh, here in New Jersey and everything. So there's been a lot of direct subsidies where cash exchanges hands and a lot of indirect subsidies for the oil industry. So don't let's not think that everybody's so innocent here with everything. Uh, but again, what do we need? What do we need? Uh, oh, let's not forget the security that we've exported, right, and throughout the world to guarantee oil. Uh, oil supplies are secure. We can name, we can, I mean, they, uh, I mean, 
The list is seemingly endless. So what do we need? Again, what am I saying? Dialogue. Honest data coming in here. Information to try to go and get to the bottom of this stuff. We don't need any more of this stinking, well, oh, rhetoric. Oh, you're never going to be able to get, uh, uh, make uh, make this work financial. You're never going to be able to make this work financial. Well, what we're doing now may not be financial, financially viable. Maybe we need some more dialogue here, some more reasonableness. More information does not make us more stupid. Right? And, uh... We're going to talk a little bit about some political stuff here coming up in a minute, and we're going to take a little break. Okay, we are starting on our final segment here uh, with this. Safety Wars is streaming now. SafetyFM.com This is our whole potpourri of stories that uh, we've had over the last couple of days. Tomorrow we're going to try to concentrate only on safety and OSHA stuff. Uh, but a lot of this other stuff is all part of that safety war that we're always battling out here uh, with this. And, of course, what's interesting to me, and that's what I'm going to talk about. Here we have, will the Supreme Court make the Sacklers pay for the opioid crisis? Will the Sackler family finally be, this is from Mother Jones, so we go the complete, no, left wing, right wing, and everything else in between. Will the Sackler family finally begin paying out a multi-billion dollar settlement to cities, states, tribes, and individuals reeling from the opioid epidemic? The Supreme Court will hear oral arguments on Monday in a case that could decide, uh, right? In a case that could decide, right? And Americans who lost loved ones to overdoses are not all in agreement on the desired outcome, partly because of a big catch. Sacklers, whose company Purdue Pharma aggressively marketed OxyContin since the 1990s, have only agreed to pay if they are shielded from future lawsuits. The Supreme Court must rule whether the law allows such a deal. So uh, they've agreed to a settlement, but only if they're shielded from future lawsuits. I can understand that with this. It's akin to going out and always, no, Doing that a million mea culpa, a million apology thing that we often have to do in corporate America, especially with safety, right? Oh, I'm no, I'm sorry, I wasn't wearing my safety glasses. Oh, well, had I been wearing them, they were not, they would not, uh, ha- I would not have had this injury. But they forget about all the guards and everything else that are through that the company left off the machines. I would have prevented that injury anyway. But anyway. Being that PP is like the last thing, but I digress. But it's along the same things with this. They don't want to keep on getting sued again and again and again and again and again with that. Now, uh, now on the other end, there were a lot of failures here with the opium epidemic. With this, you had the doctors that prescribed it, you had the people who took it, the people who supplied it, and let's remember, and this often happens. Where uh, and I recently learned this, and I'm going to try to schedule an interview with the uh, person. Where uh, people were supplying, and this is supplying, uh, 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 companies were supplying people with painkillers for this, uh, for no, for this. Oh, what your back hurts? Uh, don't go to the doctor. They're just going to give you some painkiller. Hey, here's some meloxicam here. You know, muscle reaction. Oh, what? Yeah, pain. You know what? Is there a pain? CBD, and you know, oh, you know, CBD, oh, here, take some marijuana, right? We know a doctor that'll give you medical marijuana. Wouldn't you like that, you know? And then we got the other, on the other end, where we had actually a person set himself on fire to get prescription painkillers. Yeah, that actually happened. Uh, So uh, there's a lot of uh, points to this, and I think we'll get an answer here sometime uh, by June of next year, uh, probably. Uh, hopefully sooner, on that, uh, you know, uh, and this has gone back and forth, back and forth, uh, you know, where how deep, the, how many family members get held responsible, how many don't, and, you know, they're profiting off of this stuff. Uh, you know, everything goes on, but this is a multi-layered uh, thing with uh, any type of drug abuse, Right. Not only do we have a system that sucks, a system of pain management that sucks, you have a legal system with that sucks with the outcomes and everything else, and, you know, what are you going to do with this? So 
Well, we're looking forward to uh, seeing what the outcomes of this are. Uh, going on to it, let's talk about something else. We also have uh, issues with. We also have issues with uh, first aid kits. Now, according to the ANSI standard, the first aid can only there's two types of first aid kits, and they only have to have a certain number of supplies. What about uh, what is it, naloxone, the antidote to this stuff? Should that be in your first aid kit? Because companies are finding people are overdosing at work. Should that be in there? Relatively cheap thing. Let's talk about something else that should be in a first aid kit. Tourniquet. That's not required to be in a first aid. Should that be? Diabetes testing supplies. Now that one-fifth of the people are going to be diabetic, right, in the next few years, should we have that? Should we have... Uh, 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 what we're dealing with on one of my projects, cold weather first aid. Mylar blankets, changes of clothes. I got that this year. Well, Jim, it's not our job to dress these people. Okay, fine. It's not your job to dress these people. But what happens if they get hurt? Who's going to be held financially responsible for that? Come on, I'm waiting for, for an answer on that. It's going to be the company. You have a guy at work, or a woman for that matter, at work. They get hurt because of a cold injury. You're responsible just like if they get overheated. I've heard this on the other hand. We're not supplying a water, a potable water. We're not supplying water to our workers because they should be bringing that themselves. Well, if they have a heat stroke and pass out, who's going to be financially responsible? Well, that's not my problem. And that's where it comes to it, is that it's not their problem. It's not the decision maker's issue. Because what risk does that decision maker have? And most jurisdictions, the foreman who's in charge of these decisions, not held responsible. Right? Most of them are going to get us fired. company may be held responsible, but they may not care. So this is something that you have to address and you have to realize. So if you're on a cold weather job, ask if you're going to have first aid uh, supplies to respond to first uh, to a cold weather-related emergencies. If you're not sure what those are, 845-269-5772. Uh, that's all part of our services here, cold weather training. Okay. Now, back in the September, the end of September, uh, I got a lot of good feedback, organic feedback from uh, 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 a lot of people with uh, uh, the presidential primary. What I always said was this. You have to judge what who your candidates are, and I don't care if it's left-wing or right-wing, Republican, Democrat, Independent, doesn't matter. None of that matters. It's who could get on the ballot. And if you want to go back to the September 27th program, I lay that out in one hour's worth of detail. And by the way, I do know that some nationally uh, recognized figures in the talk radio industry do listen to this program. How do I know? Because I came out with that program on the 27th and where I heard three hours of programming over the weekend on specifically what I covered. Right? And they... Didn't, basically didn't dispute what I said. So uh, with that, and they were, you know, they were sort of B-listers that people have heard of. Uh, but essentially, uh, we're coming down into this with the uh, presidential primaries here with who's going to be on the ballot. Because right now, the first in the, uh, 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 when is this, right? New Hampshire primary is... I just had it. Uh, South Carolina primary is February 24th, $50,000 to get into the primary. So in uh, New Hampshire, the New Hampshire primary, there is as a $1,000 fee and a declaration of candidacy. Which, and there's no, I didn't realize there was no uh, ballot uh, uh, no, nomination. So uh, let me type this in, New Hampshire primary date. So the New Hampshire 
Uh, primary uh, debate is, uh, I was at New Hampshire primary election is Tuesday, January 23rd. So we're a month and a half away from here with this. And what's my point here from uh, with this? Look closely who's going to be on the ballot there on the Republican end because the people who are going to be on the ballot, the major candidates, are going to be uh, who you need to watch, not anyone who's not on the ballot. And number one, and number two, the next primary, which is, I believe, South Carolina, some of the other ones, who's going to be on the ballot on them? Those are going to be your ones. If they cannot get on the ballot in those two primaries, right? New Hampshire is easy, a thousand bucks. The other one, right? Uh, 50 grand who, if they cannot be on the ballot, they're not a candidate. Real simple. So we're going to see a lot of drop-offs here. The, uh, Democrats, not really doesn't matter. You have, uh, like, uh, several candidates on the democratic end, but basically it's going to be Biden. All right. He's the sitting president. Normally the sitting president doesn't lose primaries. Uh, but, uh, not saying it's not possible, just that normally it doesn't happen. But there is a glitch because uh, the Democratic National Committee wanted the primary, wanted the first primary to be in uh, South Carolina, and I believe it was South Carolina, but they didn't want New Hampshire. I mean, the and New Hampshire said no, we're the first in the nation primary by law. So uh, you know, essentially, we'll see where it goes there. So there. Uh, President Biden's not on the ballot in New Hampshire. It doesn't even matter at this point with that. But that's what you need to pay attention to. Can they make the ballot? And you can go and uh, look that up uh, for whatever your uh, requirements are where you live for that. This story just hit the wires this morning. Uh, a tourist has died after he completed the world's highest bungee jump. A shock death came after... The 56-year-old thrill-seeker took the terrifying 764-foot plunge from the Maku Tower in the municipality of Maku. The Japanese man began to experience shortness of breath just hours after leave at 4.30 p.m. on December 3rd and later stopped breathing. He was taken to Kandi S. Jawanerio Hospital. Where was this? I don't even know where the Maku Tower is. Municipality, I don't know where that is. Uh, okay, Hong Kong, so somewhere in China. He was taken uh, to the county as Januario Hospital for emergency treatment, but was pronounced dead. The Hong Kong news outlet HKO1 reported the man had no superficial injuries on his body. Sky Park, AJ ha- Sky Park by AJ Hackett, who operated the bungee jump and other activities at the Maku Tower, Macaw, Macaw Tower states on its uh, website that clients should disclose any medical conditions. These include heart conditions, high blood pressure, diabetes, or previous surgery. The bungee jump is the highest in the world and costs each daredevil $478 for the experience. It's actually not that much money, I don't think. you got to get there. And uh, they've operated 4 million successful jumps. doesn't say how many unsuccessful ones. Now, let's talk about this. With this, I'm sure there's going to be an autopsy and we may or may not get results on this. When you're in a fall, and this is what I always tell people, they consider this fall protection PPE on the hierarchy of controls or is it considered substitution? Where you're not going to get a real serious injury, but you may, you'll still get hurt. This is a question. And what happens is I think there is a mis- interpretation especially by the untrained and uninitiated that you do not get hurt in fall protection right there's a no you can hear that well it's ppe ppe would indicate that you're not going to get hurt i'm going to tell you a lot can go wrong if you deploy fall protection and it gets used the thing is you're less likely of dying but don't tell me there's zero risk of dying as this gentleman just found out here uh, number one. Number two is what kind of injuries? You're looking at injuries to your back and neck with the old-fashioned whiplash, right, and damage to the vertebrae and going up your back. Uh, you're talking about uh, 
trauma, suspension trauma, where blood pools in your legs, and then all of a sudden, you have this oxygen-depleted blood that goes throughout your body once tension is released, and you get either a stroke, blood clot, sudden cardiac arrest, and everything else that goes into this. So to say that uh, he, uh, uh, that uh, fall protection is PPE and you're going to be protected, it's not true. On my projects, I tell people, if you're going to be deployed, if you're going to deploy, meaning you're going to fall, meaning you're going to fall, you're going to use it, you're going to get into it, Guess what? It's a 911 call or a trip to the hospital to get checked out, depending on, on what our site conditions are. And you need to fi- figure out a way of getting the person out of there quickly getting the, uh, and retrieving the person. And that is not 911 or 911. No. have to have the means and the methods on site. Uh, something to think about here with this Uh some other stuff that came out. Let's see where we are on time here. All right, we got like two minutes. Is there anything else that's here? No, not, nothing really that I really wanted to go over, but just remember uh, here, we can save it for tomorrow. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on out there. We're all about giving you information to where you're able to make decisions. We're going to talk about some other stuff on uh, Safety Word Smart, back to the regular safety stuff, but this was more or less general news with a safety bent. For Safety Wars, this is Jim Pozel. I will uh, see you back here tomorrow. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.